This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder in Adults. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. ADHD in adults is common. In the US and the UK, the prevalence of ADHD in adults is about 3 to 4%. It is commonly associated with other psychiatric and neurodevelopmental disorders, and it can cause a range of problems, problems with ongoing education, work, relationships, and family life. So how should we diagnose and manage adults with ADHD? To tell us, we have on the line Professor Marius Adamo, who is a consultant psychiatrist at the Southwest Yorkshire NHS Partnership Foundation Trust and a board member of the East Riding and Northumberland Clinical Commissioning Groups. And importantly, Marius is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Marius, you're welcome. Let's start by asking what exactly is this condition? Uh, ADHD is a neurodevelopmental condition which manifests itself with clinical impairment in the areas of attention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. It starts in childhood and continues into adulthood for uh, about 50% of the individuals and is amenable to pharmacological and non-pharmacological interventions. And can it sometimes start in adulthood? Does it always continue from childhood? There is a literature emerging that uh, points out to a an adult onset. In most cases that there is an adult onset, there is an obvious uh, trigger, which could be either a neurological condition or a medical condition, rather than uh, uh, the ADHD that we understand. Thank you. Can you tell us about how best to diagnose the disorder? The diagnosis is, is clinical and is based on attributing impairment that is caused by ADHD symptoms as obtained by the history. So the diagnosis of ADHD is based on quantifying impairment linked to the symptoms rather than uh, only observations of the individual. There are a number of screening tools and semi-structured interviews that can be used to aid the clinical decision-making. Tell us more about the types of impairments that the patients may suffer from that can help you make the diagnosis. For example, if one is looking at inattentiveness and they're taking a history of, uh, of an adult, they, will, they can ask questions around how they performed at school and they person may say, well, I didn't know what was happening in the classroom. I cannot remember anything. I was always looking out of the window. I was trying to read uh, my book and then two or three lines. Uh, I, I, could, I would stop. I may have become disruptive in the classroom, become the class clown to having something to do because everybody else was focused on doing their homework or attentive and I just couldn't uh, function in that because of that reason. Thank you. That's very clear. And as I understand it, adult ADHD can be associated with other disorders. Can you tell us more about that? 
it is very common to be associated with other disorders and it's associated with let's say two classes of disorders one class is uh, mental health conditions and is more common to have anxiety uh, disorders affective disorders substance misuse disorders and personality disorders with a diagnosis of adhd and sometimes the other class of disorders that could be more likely associated is other neurodevelopmental disorders and by which this is autism spectrum disorder it could be dyspraxia dyslexia dyscalculia so there could be a neurodevelopmental spectrum association and there could be a mental illness type association and it could be the both combined okay thank you tell us about pitfalls in diagnosis yes the pitfalls in diagnosis uh, can be made when the uh, symptoms are taken as face value and they're not tracked into impairment linked to adhd for example, a person with anxiety will present with hyperactivity and impulsivity. A person with major depressive disorder will uh, present with inattentiveness or maybe bipolar disorder will present with hyperactivity and impulsivity and inattentiveness. And if only one looks at symptoms within a short period, then th it is likely that the diagnosis will be incorrect. The way to verify the diagnosis is through pervasiveness of impairment linked to the ADHD core symptoms. What time period would you need to be looking at someone over? Well, when we, we, we look at the uh, period depending on the age of the individual. Uh, so we, we, the person, the clinician would literally be looking from early childhood until the age of 18 as a first phase to establish validity of the diagnosis. And then for adults as a second stage, uh, at least two or three years, because a person may have had a childhood ADHD and because of the way their brain developed, they don't meet threshold for uh, classification or the ADHD symptoms are not impairing enough. Then they present with ADHD type symptomatology caused by another mental illness, which is then uh, falsely linked to ADHD that was previously in existence. And therefore, that could, that's a diagnostic error that could have consequences. The example of this would be a person who had ADHD as a child. So we take the history, they have ADHD. Then now they're presenting with uh, symptoms of bipolar disorder in their, let's say, 40s or 30s. And then we think what we're seeing is the ADHD. We prescribe stimulant medication to treat the ADHD and we make the bipolar affective disorder worse. And the error in that is we have not been able to establish the impairment of the current ADHD symptoms into a decent at least two or three years uh, depth of time. Would you say that adult ADHD is underdiagnosed as a result of all of this? Uh, the ADHD is at risk at being overdiagnosed by practitioners and under underdiagnosed in the population. So a lot of people because they're not aware that they may have ADHD, 
they, there is overall a cohort underdiagnosis, but on occasion there is a risk, especially in some centers, when people are already in services to be overdiagnosed with ADHD because we, we, they present with ADHD-type symptoms, but because of the pitfalls explained earlier, that diagnosis may not be correct. So in the population under diagnosis, risk for overdiagnosis in clinical samples. Thank you. That's helpful. Who ultimately should make a diagnosis, would you say? Well, the, the guidelines uh, recommend that a person who is uh, at least versed with the use of the validated instruments and has some exposure under supervision on a training role with others who have already practicing in the area of uh, adult ADHD. Okay, let's move on to management. Tell us how you should manage patients with this condition. Well, first of all is to help them manage themselves. So in the in the ADHD, uh, it's not the same as other episodic conditions where the person has a a sense of what normal is for them. So when they come for interventions and management and treatment, they have no aware of how this will uh, affect them. So there is an element of psychoeducation, uh, allowing them to understand what they're starting from, and then the first line treatment is pharmacological. This will bring symptom reduction, but it will not automatically generate a functional improvement. A functional improvement can be brought about using uh, multidisciplinary interventions uh, that uh, skill up the individual and allow them to be taught coping mechanisms on, on how to uh, manage the impairment they accumulated through the symptoms throughout the period of many years. Let's start off with drug management first. What medications are commonly prescribed? Well, the medication use this uh, stimulant medication, and there is uh, a list of them in our guidance, a non-stimulant uh, medication, which has been used for quite a few years and they're now licensed for, uh, for adults. For adults, we can use uh, listexamphetamine or methylphenidate or um, uh, as uh, first-line treatment, and also atomoxetine, which is a non-stimulant medication as treatment for uh, adult ADHD. They work very well. In terms of uh, efficacy and effect size, they produce one of the uh, highest or most more optimistic results in symptom reduction in, in psychiatry. There's a slight difference in the way their uh, efficacy is perceived. So if one has depression and there is mild improvement there in with their antidepressants. There is some good comparison between prior state and the outcome looks positive. In ADHD, although the efficacy symptom reduction may be higher, the functional improvement may take months and years. So this is something a clinician needs to be aware of in that symptom reduction is only the first step, although the medication is better than others comparatively in symptom reduction. And to achieve the functional improvement, you need non-drug management. Is that correct? Yes, a, a various methods of that. That depends on the areas of impairment of the individual. 
So if that is psychological, then it's psychological. If it's occupational, then it's occupational. If it's social, it's, it's social. If it's in terms of relationships, it's, it's other things. So it, it, it unfolds ways by which a person can achieve a better functional state through guidance by professionals based on what they have identified as a as a need or as a difficulty. Tell us about pitfalls in management. One of the pitfalls in in is that we don't quite have very efficacious interventions outside the medication and apart from psychology that achieve functional improvement. The pathways that other professions offer at the moment are not as clear as to what works. So it could be that a professional outside medicine or psychology would have to find ways mainly guided by the individual on what might work and adapt existing approaches they have rather than having one given to them by their profession. An example of that is, for example, there is no clear understanding of the role of occupational therapists in ADHD based on the literature. It does not mean, however, that an occupational therapist cannot benefit greatly a person with ADHD based on the competencies, core competencies of the profession once the adjustments have been made. But the research that underpins those interventions has not been done in ADHD. Whilst in psychology, it says, if you do CBT, you will have some outcomes. Let's move back to drug management and stimulants. Are there side effects from stimulants? There are side effects from stimulants that include uh, lack of appetite, headaches, sometimes dizziness, maybe some increases in blood pressure, depending again on the age of the population cohort. From our experience, the side effects are when the diagnosis is correct, and that's very important, and when prescribed at the right time, not to treat comorbidity, uh, are surprisingly, one would say, very little from the stimulants, especially the long-acting ones that uh, it's recommended to be used the first time. There's been some controversy about stimulants and their potential for misuse. Is there anything to this? There is, depending on the prescriber's caution. So if a prescriber begins prescribing long-acting stimulants, uh, which because of their formulation, some of them, they uh, cannot bring uh, abuse potential, then that's safer. There are some formulations that can be bring a mood elevating effect, but they have to be manipulated in the way of their delivery. For example, uh, for methylphenidate, the short-acting methylphenidate, if it's taken orally, even at high doses, it will not have an, an, an addictive potential. If it's, however, crushed and and taken uh, parenterally, then it can. So if one uses formulations that that do not lend themselves to be abusable in their own right because of the mode of absorption, 
there is uh, no potential for uh, abuse as it relates to the mood altering effect. And last question, what have we missed, if anything? Are there other common questions you get asked about this condition? I think something to note is that uh, the diagnosis is not to be made lightly because for a lot of people, especially in adulthood, when they are given the diagnosis, it explains so much of their past. It can be a life-changing event. And therefore, it's not something that one is just blurts out and then leaves a person unsupported. It's a lifetime diagnosis for a lot of people, not everybody, because it, it does wear off, but it can have a big impact. So just giving the diagnosis uh, without your care may uh, have life-changing, uh, either way, uh, life-changing effects on an individual. Okay, thank you very much, Marius, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other important disorders. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.